You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. And Jesus looks back at them and says, but who do you say that I am? You who have followed me now for three years, who do you say that I am? The question isn't just meant to be abstract. The question is meant to be personal. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answered, who often speaks on behalf of the group for the better, and as in a moment we'll see, for the worse, he says, you are the Christ. A title that is rich with meaning. It's actually not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means anointed one. Often means Messiah. It's another way to say that Jesus is king. But to say that Jesus is Christ, to say that Jesus is king is to, to take us back to the Old Testament and to, to the promises and the, the, the anticipation of a Messiah who would come and deliver God's people and establish God's kingdom. It's in essence to say that Jesus is God. To say that Jesus is the Christ, to say that Jesus is the king, the one who establishes the kingdom of God is to say that Jesus is God. And the scriptures present us this astounding truth. Just think about it for a moment of what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. They tell us that he was born miraculously of a virgin. He was proven to be sinless, even in the face of temptation. He showed up and he said stuff to people when they didn't even ask him like this. Your sins are forgiven. You can't forgive somebody's sins unless they've sinned against you. How do you forgive sins unless you're God is what the crowd said. And he said, "Okay, if you want me to to demonstrate that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'll, I'll raise this man from being lame to allowing him to walk. He heals the lame and he he even heals the the deaf and and he heals the mute and he gets in the the sea and the the storms are raging around him. The disciples are afraid and we're told in the gospel of Mark in Mark chapter four that he commands the sea. He rebukes the sea and the sea ceases to be violent and it, it stills and is calmed. He cast out demons, demonstrating his power and authority even over evil. He raises the dead. He demonstrates that he has the authority and power over life itself. And as he gathers with people and they come to him with thoughts and questions before they speak. And as they speak, he knows the thoughts of man's heart. And we ultimately see him doing and saying only the things that God could do. And even those who gathered around him, the religious leaders of that day, they knew that Jesus couldn't just be another prophet. They knew Jesus couldn't uh, just be these things. The words of one famous author and speaker, uh, C.S. Lewis, he said to us that Jesus is either a liar. The things he said and did were completely untrue or Jesus is a lunatic. He thought the things he said and did were true or he is Lord. He is who he said he is. And the scriptures present us this truth that Jesus is God. And it's astounding truth. If you've believed for a long time, I pray that you never get over this astounding truth that's presented to us in the pages of Scripture that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
that God came for us to save us, to die for us, to rise for us, to come again for us. It's a plain truth, and yet it's an astounding truth. It's our very hope in life and death. But then I want you to see a surprising twist. Because though Jesus is God and he is the the promised king, the promised Messiah, a a term that was packed with significance. And and in in many ways at that time, in this day, the the lay of the land in Jerusalem and and, and, in Israel was that there was an anticipation, an expectation. Just about 150, 200 years before, there was an uprising in Jerusalem over a number of sacrilegious things that some of the ruling nations had done. And, and Israel had kind of rose up for a time to kind of reclaim leadership of the land. And, and, and then, of course, the Romans came in and, and they ta- have taken over. And there's this sense that this is going to happen again. When the Messiah comes, the Romans are going to be defeated. We're not going to be under the thumb of the Romans. They're going to be under the thumb of the Messiah. God's kingdom is going to come and every other kingdom is going to be wiped out, especially these Romans. That was the sense. That was the anticipation and the expectation of what uh, what. But people were were sensing and desiring. And you know this is the case because Jesus, a number of times throughout the Gospel of Mark, says what he says in verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What an odd thing to say. What an odd thing to say. Why not? You're the Christ. That's astounding. You're God, promised King and Savior. Why would we not tell people this? Why would Jesus not want to gather the crowds and say, hey, you want to know something amazing? I'm God. (laughs) Right. And everyone would have been like, what? But Jesus doesn't do that because he wasn't the God and the king that they were expecting. They were expecting a king who would come and defeat their enemies, establish their kingdom, bless them and and give them a way out of what they were experiencing. A way out of their their current situation and to experience blessing and peace and security and to have it all right now. Kingdom of God now here, defeating these people that are over us, defeating these circumstances that are facing us. And Jesus isn't that kind of king. Jesus isn't that kind of God. The surprising twist we see is in verse 31. The only way I know how to describe verse 31 is that it's Easter before the fact. This is why we're in this text this morning. This tells us what Easter is all about. But it doesn't tell us that as Easter happened, it tells us it before Easter happened. And I want you to understand that Easter isn't just a series of events that have happened that we look back on and we remember with legendary effect. But Easter was the plan of God from the beginning to secure the salvation of anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus came for this reason. He says in verse 31 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man, another term that Jesus often used for himself that had a divine um, background in the, the, the book of Daniel chapter 7. You can look at Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 16 to see this. He said this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the who's who of religious leaders in Israel and be killed, not just die, but be killed unjustly. And after three days, 
rise again. And just in case you wonder if Jesus was being cryptic, verse 32 tells us he said this to them plainly. This is the first of three times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus foretells his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. What Jesus experienced on what we call Good Friday and what we call Easter Sunday was not just a random happenstance of events, but it was the very purpose for why he came. It was the very purpose for his birth and for his life and his ministry. Everything was leading to this. The question of who is Jesus was leading to this. What is his mission? Why did he come? And I love if you look in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, just flip over a page. It tells us as Jesus talks about these things, he says it even more clearly here. He says the son of man, there's the language again, came not to be served, but to serve. That's why we are a family of servants following our servant king. But he says he came not to be served, but to serve and this, give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of others. That's why Jesus came and that's what he says. And all of this was not an accident, accident, but was a necessity. Did you notice the word must? Look again at verse 31. He taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and that then can then be applied to the rest of what follows, that he must be rejected, that he must be killed, that he must rise again because this was God's plan. The Messiah was supposed to conquer and rule in the minds of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to conquer and rule, but not in the way that you think. I'm going to conquer and rule through laying down my life on the cross. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, why did Jesus have to die? All of the truth of Christianity centers on this fact that Jesus died and that he rose again. Why did it have to be that? Couldn't there have been some other way? Couldn't have Jesus and God figured out some other plan? And I suppose the answer is they could have, but the, the truth of the scripture is that there is no other way. The cross was not plan B. The cross was plan A. And we're told these, at least these three reasons that Jesus died on the cross. First, it's to fulfill God's promise. If you could flip back into the Old Testament, uh, a few, few pages, uh, not a few pages, a, a good chunk. If you grab a few chunks of uh, pages and turn to Isaiah 53. We see that ultimately Jesus' death was, was not just something that came out of nowhere, but it was actually in the scriptures waiting uh, to, to be fulfilled. It, it tells us in Isaiah 53 of a servant. A servant who came to suffer. Does that sound familiar to what we just read in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Just consider the words of Isaiah 53 that's written some 600 to 800 years before um, the time of Jesus' life and ministry. It says in Isaiah 53 that there is going to be a suffering servant. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up and be exalted. It says that he'll be of no uh, grand assemblance and, um, and be uh, not admired by mankind. And, uh, and, and it goes on to say in verse, um, <clears throat> verse 4, or verse 3, excuse me, of Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
And then hear what this suffering servant did, he, or what he's going to do. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him all the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away as for his generation who who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, struck in from the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Why? Because he shall bear their iniquity. I feel like I'm reading to you from the gospel, but I'm reading to you from a prophet from the Old Testament. It goes on to say, therefore, they divided uh, him a portion with many and they shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered amongst the transgressors. And yet he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for the transgressions. The death of Jesus Christ was to fulfill God's promise. It was to fulfill what God had said. It was the divine necessity that Jesus die on the cross. And in him dying on the cross, he bore our sin. He paid for our sin to ransom us from judgment and death and to give us life. And, and scripture goes on to say elsewhere in Romans chapter three, um, that Jesus's death is to satisfy God's wrath. The scriptures tell us that, that God is, is holy and loving, holy and loving. Some of you might have a, like a grandparent who feels holy and loving. Like if you do wrong, you know, you will pay. <laughs> And yet you've never felt more loved. <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some, maybe it's a parent for you. I don't know who it is, but sometimes we, we have that sense of a person who is just, man, it's almost like they do no wrong, though we know they do. But, uh, and yet they're so loving. You see, God, God is so holy that he cannot overlook our sin. And yet he is so loving that he is not willing to leave us alone in our sin. I learned that some 20 years ago when I came to faith in Christ. And it still astounds me. God didn't overlook our sin. And yet he doesn't leave us in our sin. We, we all want someone to overlook our sin. We all want someone to be like, that's not that big of a deal. But God doesn't do that. And yet we also really want someone to open their arms and welcome us. And love us. To like know us and all our junk and love us. And yet God does that. Listen, listen to what it says in, in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't miss any punches. We are all sinners. I don't know if you believe that. But that's what the Bible teaches us. Steps on our toes a little bit, but, but don't, don't get too offended yet. Listen, it says that though we are all sinners, we are justified by his grace 
as gift through the redemption, through the redeeming, through the ransom that Jesus paid. God put him forward as a propitiation, a big word that means that that the wrath of God against sin was satisfied through Jesus's blood, which is talking about his death to be received by faith, that we can make that true for us through faith. This was to show God's righteousness and his forbearance. He had passed over the former sin. It was to show at the present time that he might be just, not overlooking sin in the past or the present and the justifier, the one who forgives sinners through faith in Jesus. The justifier of the one who has put faith in Jesus. This is our hope. That God doesn't overlook our sin and yet God doesn't leave us in our sin. Jesus actually satisfies God's wrath. I don't know if you've ever felt like God's out to get you. Even as a Christian, sometimes life is tough. And you feel like, God, you like, are you coming for me? Like, what's the deal? If you're in Christ... The wrath is gone. If you're in Christ, there's no judgment bearing down on you. That's the hope of Christ on the cross. And yet we also know that Jesus' death on the cross was for this, to display God's love. Stay right there in Romans and just flip ahead to Romans chapter 5. Verse 8 tells us God shows his love in this. That he was willing to overlook our sin? Nope. That he was willing to call amends and say, let's live and let live? Nope. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by by the death of his son, how much more? Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have received reconciliation. God shows his love for us and that while we are sinners, he died for us. The Apostle John said it this way. Maybe you learned it when you were young or maybe you heard it when you were old or somewhere in between. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves us. And the loved us so much means that he loved us in this way that he gave his son for us. He laid down his life for us that we might have forgiveness and new life and eternal life in him. This is why Christ died. This is what Easter is about. And Jesus is telling us here before it happens. This is the message of Easter. But then something else happens that is a further plot twist. And yet I call it an understandable response. And it's the Apostle Peter. If you continue with me in verse 32, it says that after hearing this, Peter brings Jesus to the side. And you can just begin to see it unfold. And he began to rebuke him. This is the same word that Jesus used to rebuke demons and to rebuke the sea. Peter rebukes Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. And he says that Jesus, upon hearing his rebuke, turns and sees his disciples. And he takes this moment. To in turn rebuke Peter and to teach his disciples something. And he says this, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Peter was like the center of the early Christian movement. And here Jesus is calling him, in essence, Satan for thinking and saying the the very things that Satan would want Peter to say. He's not on God's way of thinking. He's on Satan's way of thinking, wanting to thwart the very divine plan of God. That there must be another way, Peter is thinking. Surely the one who's going to conquer shouldn't suffer and die in a humiliating way. Uh, As Jesus has unpacked, surely this isn't the plan. Surely there's another way. I don't think Peter is embarrassed or ashamed. I think Peter understands what Jesus is saying and is saying, I don't want this for you, Jesus. And if you're going to die, that must mean that things aren't going to be pretty for all of us who are right behind you. So there's got to be another way, Jesus. And I say this is understandable because uh, it's easy to like, you know, anytime you see one of the disciples um, fumble things, it's easy to kind of pile on to them. But I think the scriptures teach us this. I think one, uh, again, to commend to you the the, the trustworthiness of scripture, the the scriptures don't paint for us idyllic visions of those who follow Jesus. They actually tell us some pretty embarrassing things about them. Like Peter here, rebuking Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man who came to die for our sins and rise from the dead. Here he is rebuking him. And Jesus is setting him straight. It's not a flattering picture in any way, even though it's easy to to poke at. And yet I I think that it's there not only to tell us something about the trustworthiness of Scripture, but also to, to help us look in the mirror and to see ourselves. And I call it an understandable response, not because we we should be okay with it, but have you ever had to go through something you wish you didn't? Have you ever not had something that you wish you had? Have you ever struggled to understand what God is doing and why he is doing it and why he's doing it right now? Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I had... Blessing without suffering. I wish I was in control and could call the shots without God messing it up with his plan. Have you ever not wanted what God wants? That's what Peter's dealing with. And I would suspect that's what all of us deal with every day of our lives. It's an understandable response because it cuts to the heart of you and I and how we respond to God and to what he's doing and even to his word. We too can be like Peter. We too can listen to the lies of Satan and think to ourselves, we can have it our way. We can do a runaround on God. We can, we know that he may say this, but it doesn't have to be that way. The lie of the serpent of Satan in the garden was you won't surely die when you eat of the fruit. God's holding something back on you. You know what? Maybe what God wants for me, maybe that's the ultimate killjoy. I don't want to go that route because I want joy. I want satisfaction. We, we want to take and eat like Adam and Eve. We want to take and, and live, to take and pursue power, wealth, pleasure, control, security, comfort, our way, in our timing, according to our liking. That's what's in Peter's heart. And though it's mixed with political dynamics for the nation of Israel and, uh, and prophetic dynamics in relation to the Messiah, it's at the, at the heart of it is a personal desire to want things our way according to our liking and our timing. And it hits me and it hits all of us square between the eyes. And Jesus says, it's not like that in my kingdom. And he ends with this, this personal invitation, and this is where we'll end today. Jesus says, 
not just to his disciples, but to all who are listening. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's the invitation. The invitation Jesus gave continually throughout his life and ministry was follow me. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, a Christian follows Jesus. If you are a Christian, never forget that the heart of what it means is not just to go through certain rituals, not to just go through certain motions, but it means to follow Jesus, to listen to him, to obey him, to love him, to worship him, to love the things he loves, to hate the things he hates, to pursue the things that he says are are praiseworthy, to, to turn from the things that he says are unworthy, to put off the things that aren't of him, to put on the things that are of him. This is just the language of the Bible. It's to walk as Jesus walked. If you're in Christ, we should walk, Paul says in Colossians, just as he walked. Our life is to be defined by Jesus at the center of it all. Just like the video said in the beginning is is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. That defines our life, our reality, our present helps us understand our past and redefines our future. And, And Jesus is here saying, follow me to anyone who has ears. To anyone who's willing to listen, follow me. And here's what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, according to Jesus, means that we die to ourselves. Our way of living, our identity, our comfort, and our authority. Don't you just wish that Jesus could be an add-on to our life? That we could have our life our way, but Jesus would be like the extra spice. The spice of life, Jesus. I want me with a little bit of Jesus. And you know, that has been the type and brand of Christianity that we have mass produced around the world in many ways. A belief in wealth and prosperity that you can have it your way and have wealth and Jesus is going to help you get there. You name it and claim it. A a type of individualistic faith that says, I want the things of Jesus that align with me and the things that don't align with me, that don't resonate with me, that don't help me to express myself. I don't want those things. I like the ethic of Jesus that teaches us to love people, to uh, be a decent person, to do unto others as we have them do unto us. But I don't like the stuff that Jesus is like. There are two ways. There's the broad way that leads to death and destruction and then there's a narrow way that leads to life and that way is through faith in Christ. And Jesus is here saying us to follow me means that we die to ourselves. Look at how he says it. That we, in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Luke chapter 9 verses 23 through 24 says the same thing, but it says it this way with this emphasis. Jesus said that we must die to ourselves daily. It's both a commitment and yet it's a ongoing uh, reality in our lives that we are seeking to die to ourselves. We don't define ourselves the way we want. We let him define it. We don't define comfort the way we want comfort. We let him define it. We don't define authority as our authority, but we define authority as his authority. We are under him. We say yes to Jesus and we say yes to him ruling over our life. For Jesus to be king and yet for him not to be full king over our lives is, is, a, uh, is an oxymoron. How can he be king if he's not king over everything in me? I'm not done. 
because Jesus isn't done. I wish I was done. Like Rishi, I hope this doesn't take much longer. Um, <clears throat> Jesus goes on to say, you must deny yourself. Look at verse 34 and take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, this has become common language in, in our English language. Take up your cross. So I'm, I'm just bearing my cross. And even during the Holy Week, we, uh, throughout, through Lent, we will practice giving up some things. And people will talk about bearing their cross. And I think there's some good intent in this. But, but hear me, bearing your cross can't be just giving up chocolate, right? Like it, it, can't be, it, it can't just be some inconvenience that you are enduring. Jesus is saying something so much more. Here's what he means. To follow Jesus means that we embrace the suffering that comes from obedience over the comfort that comes from disobedience. We are willing to embrace the suffering that comes from obedience over the comfort that comes from disobedience. What was Jesus's cross? It was a literal cross on Golgotha outside of Jerusalem. And why was he on that cross out of obedience to the father and the plan of God for our sin? Jesus said that I am going to the cross. And if you want to follow me, the way to follow me is through the cross. Now, Easter would be great if there wasn't this uncomfortable stuff. That says to us, like, deny yourself, follow Jesus through embracing suffering that comes from obedience. Jesus does not say pursue suffering. Jesus does not to say desire suffering. Jesus does not glorify suffering. Jesus says on the road to the cross, expect suffering. But all those who bear the cross can expect glory. All the suffering that we endure won't compare to what awaits us in eternity and what awaits us as we rest in Christ, even in the midst of the storm. This is the, the call to follow Jesus, the cost to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't shy away from it. I don't want to shy away from you today. You may say to yourself, man, this is a big deal. You heard Rishi's testimony, the cost of following Jesus. He unpacked that in his mind. There is a cost, but it's worth it. And Jesus unpacks that for us in the, the remainder. And I just want to ask you some questions as we end our time in the word. What do you really want? You ever think about that? Jesus says <clears throat> for he explains what why he gave this invitation. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That's the paradox of the Christian life. You die to self to find life in Christ. You live for you, you, you will lose what you are living for. You live for Christ, you can't lose Christ. You live for stuff, you will lose stuff. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, when I think about gaining the whole world, I can't help but think about Pinky and the Brain, right? World domination. You know what I'm saying? Some of you don't know Pinky and the Brain, but Pinky was like the ugliest cartoon character ever. But he wanted world domination, and he plotted every show for world domination. And you may, it's easy to read that and be like, I don't want world domination. I just like want my world domination. And that's the point. What do you want? What are you living for? What do you desire to have? And the question that follows that is this. If you got it, would it be worth the eternal weight of your soul? 
Because that's what Jesus is asking. What can, if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul, what can a man give in return for his soul? The value of the human soul cannot be, uh, cannot be purchased by wealth and fame and acceptance and academic status and career status and life achievement. None of those things can fill the value of our soul, can be exchanged for our soul. Our soul's value is God sized because we are made by God in his image and we are redeemed through Christ in his death and resurrection. And Jesus is pressing home the point for us to consider. The question is too important. Even the cost is great. The the cost of your soul is greater. And he goes on to say, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his father with the holy angels. Jesus died. He rose and he's coming again. And, and we think about the approval of God in the end, the praise of God in the end, not being ashamed of him. It leads us to ask these questions. These aren't mine, but I think they get at the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Whose approval do you crave most? Whose praise are you most desperate not to lose? And whose presence do you feel do you fear most being ashamed? Which relationship is most precious to you? And if you get it, will it matter in the end if you don't have God's approval? If you get that and yet don't have God's approval, will it matter in the end? And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that you can have the security and comfort that we often seek outside of him only by finding it in him. Eighty years of suffering And following Christ will be nothing in comparison to an eternity of unending joy and satisfaction and pleasure at the right hand of God. The Bible says the light momentary affliction that we face in the pursuit of Christ will be nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that will be ours. This is the the offer, the invitation that Jesus gives us. The sacrifices on the way of following Christ are worth it because of who Jesus is and why he came. And the, the temptation is to believe the lie of Satan, to believe the temptation of Peter, to fall for the belief that there's more joy and purpose and satisfaction outside of Christ and the stuff that is in front of us that's easy for us to grab onto and yet so easy for us to lose. And Christ is saying, it's in me, and when you have me, you can't lose me. Because I defeated death, and I alone can give eternal life. They put Jesus on the cross on Friday. He was on the cross in our place and for our sin. They put him in the tomb as though he was defeated. But on the third day... He rose. He rose from the dead, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over Satan. And if he rose, that means that anyone who calls on his name 
can be forgiven of their sins. Anyone who calls on their name, confessing their sin, confessing their belief in him can have the the confidence and the security and the purpose and the joy and the satisfaction, not just in eternity, but in any and every circumstance of life. Right now, through Christ, even through suffering, even through trial, even through success and joy. True life is found in dying to self. Nothing which does not die will truly live. Nothing that's not put into the ground and dies will not truly live in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, die to yourself. And at the end of dying to yourself, you will not find misery. You will not find disappointment. You will not find darkness and shame. But you will find life and unending joy and unending satisfaction and unbreakable, unbreakable security and comfort. And Him, through Him. Listen, I, I just want to say to those who have believed, we say this every Sunday in some way, shape, or form. It's really true. He really died. He really rose. He's really coming again. Don't hold back from following him. Though the cost is great, he is worthy. Though the the journey and pursuit of Christ and living for Christ and making him known can can bear cost and it can be challenging and our, our life can throw so many things at us. He is with us. He is for us. If he did not spare his own son, Paul said, how will he not also give us all things in Christ? At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. If you're in Christ, you have access to the very right hand of God through Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You have access to the pleasures of God as a follower of Christ. All of this is yours in him. What a treasure. Live for him. Follow him. And friend, if you haven't, the invitation is this. And I just want to say it as simply and plainly as it was said to me when I was 14. We are sinners. It's an uncomfortable truth, but I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, don't live up to our own expectations. And if we look a little bit into what God expects, we know we fall far short of his. But Jesus made us to have a relationship with us. He desires to know us. He already knows us. He's our creator. But sin separates us from him. It makes an impossible chasm for us to come to God. But Easter. Jesus came for this purpose. To die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. And to rise from the dead. Demonstrating that he really did pay for our sin. And can provide. Has the authority to provide forgiveness and new life in him. And the Bible says that anyone who had confessed their sins and believed in Jesus will have eternal life. You may say, I've heard that before. I've thought about that before. Have you made the decision for yourself? Have you followed him? Have you committed to follow him? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? Like Rishi, maybe you're scared that you'll mess it all up. You won't know what to do when when the rubber meets the road. That's okay. None of us do. It's not about what we offer him. It's about what Jesus has offered us. That's what we receive. And when we trust in him, we're placed in his hand and nothing can be plucked out of his hand. Whatever comes our way, we can trust that he's with us and that we're his. What is our only hope in life and death? The children's catechism says that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to God. 
Only one who's turned from their sin and trusted Christ can have confidence and security in that way. And friend, I want you to have confidence and security.